Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We're your co-hosts, Dylan and Jess. And just as a reminder, for all of our episodes, while we love interviewing people who fall far from the norm and interrogating radical ideas, we do not necessarily endorse the views of our guests on this show. We encourage you to engage with the topics introduced in these conversations and take some time to connect with where you stand with these radical ideas. We also encourage you to join the conversation and share your thoughts online on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And in this episode, we interviewed Shamika Goddard. Shamika is a PhD student at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Information Science Department. Before her PhD work, Shamika was a first-generation college graduate from Stanford University, and she holds a Master's of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary at Columbia University. She's also a founder of Techno-Womanism, a discipline that speaks to the intersections between liberation, the experience and embodiment of Black women, and technology. She is the founder of TechChaplaincy.com, whose mission is to stand at the intersection of technology and humanity and meet challenges therein with love, hope, peace, and the joy of God. Jess, I am so excited to share this interview with our listeners because Shamika is actually someone that I've known for about eight years now. I actually went to seminary with her at Union Theological Seminary at Columbia University, and I was there when Shamika was birthing this idea of techno-womanism for the first time. It's been a while, actually, since I've been in conversation with Shamika. We took different paths. I went to ministry. Shamika stayed in technology ethics. And I was so excited to be able to hear her journey and all that she's been up to during that time. Yeah, it's really a small world, isn't it, Dylan? And as a sneak peek of the interview that will follow, Dylan and I do a little segment we like to call Loved, Learned, or Leave, where we discuss some of the major topics brought up by our guest that we loved and learned or maybe wanted to leave behind. And this can mean any topics that might have challenged us in some way. So for me in this episode, something that I loved was that Shamika has this idea to remember that you are the human in this equation, the equation being uh, this relationship that we have with our technology. And she was teaching people to not fear and to not be anxious about technology and saying that we as the humans, we still hold the power in this relationship. I I love that idea. Something that I learned was actually about that relationship. Shamika talks a lot about how technology, like our phones and our laptops, they can be a conduit or almost a proxy relationship between us and our human relationships. And um, that because of that, we inherently have a relationship relationship with our technological tools. And that's not something I've ever really thought about before. It made me think a little bit differently about the technologies that I I use and interact with every single day. And something that I would leave, uh, just meaning something that really challenged me quite a bit in this episode, was Shamika's idea of God or divinity existing in the bits and the bytes of technology and algorithms and uh, the things that we use and interact with technologically every single day. I think uh, I struggled with this a bit because I, uh, I, I think of myself as more of a, a spiritual 
person rather than a religious person. And uh, inherently, I've actually kind of thought the opposite to what Shamika was saying. I tend to think that technology and um, our connection with humans are almost in conflict with each other. And Shamika kind of shed some light on why this is actually not really the case. She even said, bless its heart, to talking about her laptop with a cracked screen and saying that her laptop was a part of her family. So she talks about technology in a way that shows this really big connection and relationship, almost this like appreciation and gratitude for technology that really made me uh, think twice about the the relationship and the appreciation that I feel with uh, my own technology and, and the way that I use it and my connection with it. So that was something really challenging in a good way for me. And what about you, Dylan? What did, what did you love, learn, or leave? I think the thing that I loved the most, actually this stems right from what you were just talking about, is the way that Shamika centers relationships and our relationships with the divine, our relationships with technology, our relationships with one another, and puts them all on a, on a similar plane. I served as a chaplain in the hospital for um, multiple years, including serving on the burn unit and the neurological ICU. And my entire reason for being there, my job as a chaplain was to help folks make sense of their mortality and their relationships with the world around them. And it's amazing to me what Shamika has been able to do with this idea of chaplaincy in the technological space. It seems like there's so much potential for that idea. And it was really cool for me to hear her perspective on where techno chaplaincy can go in addition to techno-womanism, which I think is the thing that I learned the most about during this interview, this idea of techno-womanism, this uh, embodiment of the experiences of Black women historically and presently in the technology space. It's something that I have a very different experience of, I think, as a white male in those same spaces, which also plays into what I would leave behind or what challenged me about this interview, which is this concept of what Shamika called the black tax, uh, this idea that black folks, especially in technology spaces and in industry, have to be extra diligent and have to work harder in order to get the same attention, to be respected the same way that someone who looks like me might have to work. And that's something that I feel a certain level of guilt about as I navigate my own representation, my own identity in these spaces, I have to ask myself, you know, why am I getting these opportunities? Is it because of what I look like? Is it because of who I am? Is it because of the work that I'm doing? And uh, there's questions of privilege all throughout this field, even as we talk about, you know, techno ethics in general, we can't think of ourselves as separate. Just because we're commenting on ethics doesn't mean we don't have to do the hard work ourselves. And I think that that's something that Shamika really invites us to do on questions of accessibility and representation in technology spaces. Again, we are so excited to feature this interview with our good friend, my old friend, and wonderful colleague, Shamika Goddard. 
Well, Shamika, it's great to have you on the show today. And we would love to get started off just by getting to know you and your background and your story a little bit more. So if you would do us the pleasure, we would love to know about uh, where you come from, your background, not necessarily just as a researcher, but just in life and what brings you here today with us. Thank you so much for having me here uh, today. I love chatting with you all. Uh, so the rumors are true. I am Shamika. Uh, I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, uh, the oldest of four kids. And I went to Stanford University for my undergrad to uh, study a number of things and ended up eventually studying African and African-American studies. Uh, a year of service with AmeriCorps took me to New York City. Uh, that is where I went to Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York for graduate school. Uh, and during the course of my Master of Divinity program, uh, a lot of really incredible things happened. Um, I was able to rediscover my passion and love for technology uh, and combined that with the commitment I made to serve uh, others uh, through my year of service with AmeriCorps. After that, uh, work, that time working with reading partners as a site coordinator, uh, working with with lead, lead, reading literacy uh, with students, uh, I really decided to commit my life to service, but I didn't know to whom and what that would look like. So um, I decided to go to seminary and discern that. Uh, and in the first semester there, I was helping people set up their computers, set up their email accounts, uh, setting up their Google Drive. There was one class in particular that was an intro to systematic theology course in which I had almost 100 students on my Google Drive account, not looking at my own papers and essays and this sort of thing, but just how I had organized the notes, how I had organized all the documents that we had been given as students. Uh, and so there are a lot of people who, even after I had finished taking the class, would share that information with other students to help them get through the course. So by the end of my first semester in seminary, I went to the IT department and said that there are a lot of students who need help. I was not sure if I would be able to help them all in my spare time. And so the IT department said, well, why don't we pay you to continue helping students and uh, just support you in doing that? So I was like, okay, sure. Uh, so in my second semester of seminary in January of 2014 is when I started uh, working uh, and serving as a tech chaplain. I came up with the concept to embody the way in which I was approaching tech support. I had, uh, over the course of the first semester and leading into the second one, I had had conversations with students uh, who were so grateful for the way that I met them in their technological crisis and helped them find dignity as I ushered them through not only the crisis, uh, but over to the other side of empowerment. And I really felt like there was a need for that level of service uh, and the cross-section of technology and faith leaders or, or folks who are using technology for good, uh, people who are purpose-driven and have uh, social justice orientation to the work that they do. Uh, oftentimes, there is a struggle with technology. Uh, it might be that you have over a thousand something emails in your inbox and you're just drowning in them. It might be that you're working on a board for a faith community and a lot of the board members are not familiar with Google Docs and they don't know how to use them and you're not sure how to train them. Uh, it could be a number of things. So I saw this need for, uh, for people to, to get help with tech literacy uh, in particular, but also 
to overcome what I was seeing uh, as a fear and anxiety around technology. And that was something that I wanted to speak to specifically in the work that I did with folks. Um, There was one story in particular where I was helping someone get down to inbox zero, which is one of the things that I really focused on uh, in the first couple of semesters as a tech chaplain. And this particular student had an old email account that they they didn't really use anymore. It wasn't really serving them and we were going to close it. And we were on the very last step and they were sort of pausing. They were getting teary eyed. They were, they were having some difficulty. So I told them, we've done a lot so far. Let's take a moment. Let's take a breath. I'm right here. It's okay. Whenever you're ready, you just need to click the delete account button. This email address will go away and the email address that you are using will still be there. So they took a moment, they shed a tear, they clicked the button. I didn't see them for a week. When I saw them next, they were on cloud nine. They were like, Shumika, you have no idea. That moment unblocked my brain somehow. I went home and rearranged my apartment. I feel so light now. That was an incredible experience for me. And that was really rewarding for me to hear. So my experience of working with with people on campus from students eventually to faculty and staff and even uh, working with folks outside of the university, uh, the seminary, uh, showed me that there was a definite need for for what it is that I wanted to do as a tech chaplain. Um, So that was, as I said, I started back in 2014. I finished my degree at Union Theological Seminary in 2017 and then decided to work for a couple of years before going into a doctoral program. Uh, And because of my work as a tech chaplain, I thought maybe I can marry what I'm doing professionally with what I'm doing academically. So I thought about how can I incorporate technology, something about social justice uh, into my academic research. So as as an MDiv student, our final thesis uh, was what I was working on that year. And I decided to come up with techno-womanism as a concept and an ethical framework that uses the womanist ethic as an approach to deal with social justice issues that occur in and around the digital space. Uh, And so I wrote a paper as well as created a YouTube series and I embedded those videos in my paper. uh, And that was what I turned into the, the seminary for my thesis. And since then, that's what, those are the two sort of things that I've been focusing on tech chaplaincy and techno womanism. Yeah, that, that's awesome, Shamika. I um, I am a fellow a Union Theological Seminary alum, um, and uh, I was actually just on the uh, one of the the Facebook pages uh, today, and uh, you you got a very special uh, shout out about all the work that you did with technology because right now, as we're recording this, is in uh, the middle of the COVID nineteen uh, outbreak, and so people are starting to engage with technology and having to engage engage with technology in a in a completely different way. Um, but before we get into into all of that, I'm wondering um, if you could say a little bit more about womanism as a concept and how you have married that into the technological space. Yes, I would be happy to. So womanism is a concept that was coined by a woman named Alice Walker. She's an author. You may know her from The Color Purple, which is uh, one of her more well-known texts. Uh, however, she did write in 1983, a a book that was called In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, A Woman is Prose. And in the preface of that book, she defined a term that she had been using in her writing for a couple of years up to that point. The term was womanist. Womanist is, uh, she has a four-part definition for what a womanist is, who a womanist is, uh, and what a womanist does. 
in the four part definition, the first part of the definition says that a womanist is a feminist, a black feminist or a feminist of color. In the second part of the definition, uh, she talks about how a womanist loves men or women sexually or non-sexually, uh, is committed to the survival and wholeness of all people, men and women. Uh, and she, in the third part of the definition, talks about all the things a womanist loves, roundness, dancing, the moon, herself, all of these different things a womanist loves and loves them regardless. And the fourth part of the definition is probably what most people have heard uh, from Alice Walker as a quote, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. So this term was, was picked up by Black female-identified theologians in the mid-80s uh, to create and craft a theology based on this concept that centered the Black woman's experience uh, religious experience and spiritual experience as a valid starting point for theological reflection. Uh, and that also ballooned into uh, not only a womanist theology, but a womanist epic. And similar to feminism, there have been a multiple epochs or epics of time uh, that womanism has developed. Uh, Monica Coleman, who uh, I believe she edited uh, Ain't I a Womanist, which was a look at third wave womanism, uh, in that text, in the in the introduction, she talks about the three three essential waves of womanism uh, and how the first wave was how um, people like um, uh, Katie Cannon would uh, wrote Katie's Cannon uh, were establishing womanism as a theology. In the second wave, uh, it was being uh, sort of expounded upon from these first texts. Uh, that were written, uh, a lot of these women coming out of Union Theological Seminary. Uh, however, there were critiques of the second wave of womanism being very heteronormative, very Christian-based, not very either local or global. Uh, and then the third wave of womanism uh, was de was defined by Monica Coleman somewhat as uh, more an ideological politic as opposed to an identity politic. So it was less about Black women specifically being able to think about, write about, speak about womanism, but I was thinking more along the lines of what what do we all have to to say about and to contribute to womanism? So that was where uh, you had people like Monica Coleman uh, and other folks who were starting to take womanism and and share it with and expand it to as many folks as possible. And, and I found out about womanism back in 2013 in seminary. So by the time I came to it, it was, uh, it was still something that while very impactful and powerful, not a lot of people were familiar with. That's still the case. Um, so when I thought to incorporate it into uh, my own ethical framework of techno-womanism. It is a combination of an application of womanism, but it's also a really focused attempt to take the the best practices and uh, the tenets of womanism and use those within an ethical framework uh, as a way to assess, analyze, uh, and and mitigate uh, social justice issues that occur in and around the digital space and in and around technologies. That's really awesome. Wow. Very unique and interdisciplinary. And I'm going to I'm going to shift the questioning a little bit away from uh, techno womanism. And I'm I'm intrigued about something that you initially mentioned when you were sharing the beginnings of your story uh, with the 
the tear felt and emotional um, inbox zero, which I totally empathize with, by the way, that is a very big deal <laughs> to get to inbox zero. So props to you for um, enabling that. Uh, so you mentioned that you have noticed that a lot of people have a lot of fear and anxiety around technology. We experience that a lot in the realm of AI. This is something that Dylan and I definitely discuss quite a bit. Uh, I'm curious what your take is on this from your experience in this realm and the people that you've helped. Yeah, um, it's, it's really interesting to me because you'll have folks who will get a device like a cell phone or a laptop or a tablet or whatever it may be, um, and it's not like when you got your driver's license for a car, you, you were given some information about how a car works, what to do if the tire breaks down, how to follow different signs on the road. Like there was this process that everybody went to for safety reasons, but also for informative reasons on how to use a car. Uh, you're operating this this big mechanical vehicle that's that's very dangerous if it's not operated well. Uh, and that was that was what folks used to figure out how to use a car. But when you're handed a cell phone, or when you handed a laptop, nowadays, you barely get a manual. You might get a flimsy piece of paper that sends you to a QR code or a website, maybe, uh, on how this thing works. But there's less and less information about the what to do if something goes wrong or, or how to get started or, or what kind of cues to follow and how to orient yourself in these particular with these particular tools. Um, so there are a lot of people, and I don't necessarily mean a particular kind of person, such as an older person or such as, you know, like anything like that. There are people across the spectrum who have various issues with technology. You could be a young person and you're on TikTok all day long, but you might not know how to take advantage of Google Docs in a, in a particular way or, or uh, you know, how to, how to use some of these tools for in a professional sense. Um, so, and there are also octogenarians like, um, oh, what's this, uh, George Takai, who are, are doing great on their social media game. So, Across the spectrum, there are people who have uh, strengths and weaknesses when it comes to technology, but in terms of the fear and anxiety, there's not any one uh, process through which people go to, go through to gain digital literacy. If you're in a K through 12 setting, you might have access to digital citizenry programming. Um, excuse me, digital citizenry programming is uh, geared around teaching digital uh, digital literacy, digital etiquette, rights and responsibilities. There's, there's this nine elements of digital citizenry that Mike Robb uh, came up with a couple of years ago. Uh, and Common Sense Media has its own curriculum. I think the Nearpod might also have its own digital citizen cur citizenry curriculum. So if you're in certain school settings, you might get some of this information about how to create passwords, how to keep your data safe on the internet, um, how to not be a troll. Like some of these sort of tenants that everybody who's using the internet, everybody who's engaging in this, the digital space, everybody who's using these different tools would do well to have. I was born in 1985. I did not get any digital citizenry classes in any of my uh, K through 12 experience. I learned on the fly, got my first phone in college and got my own desktop computer, which I lugged around or lugged in between school, school years for four years as an undergrad. Uh, so there are a lot of adults my age and older who 
had to learn on the fly, had to learn on the job, had to learn uh, while in school how to use uh, a lot of the technologies we have, we take for granted today. Uh, and, and in the time we're in now, there are so many more people who are leaning heavily on technological tools, trying to figure them out uh, because they're suddenly having to work from home. So they're doing meetings on Zoom. They're suddenly having to go to school from home. So they're having to use different tool, tools like Zoom and other things. There are people who are trying to figure out how to uh, take their faith community online? How do they continue to care for and communicate with uh, and and worship with uh, the people in their faith community using the digital space, using technological tools? So if you don't have a healthy, empowered relationship with technology, then you're going to be using it with a 10-foot pole and you're, you're going to be very uncomfortable with it. You're not going to uh, be able to embrace it and use it to the fullest of its extent to do the thing that you need to do. Uh, and so from my perspective as a tech chaplain, um, I come from a Christian tradition. I consider myself to be Christian adjacent. And uh, one of the scriptures that I think speaks very well to this is uh, from Second Timothy, which speaks about having, we've not been given a spirit of fear and timidity. Uh, and so this notion of using technology um, you know, I, I remind people, remember that you're the human in this equation. That laptop, don't let it beat you, right? Uh, there, there are moments where if something is going wrong, you might get a white rage and you just don't see anything. Someone can be trying to help you and say, well, there's a close button right there on the top right. You're like, what button? Where? I don't understand. I don't see it. Like that kind of perspective, if you're coming from that fear and anxiety, if you're coming from this angry, why isn't this working? I don't understand. I'll never understand. Like whatever perspective you may be coming from in that way, it's not going to help you get where you want to go. And there's also this, this understanding that uh, some people are very playful with their technology. They'll, they'll try something new. They'll try something different. If they don't know how to do it, they'll tinker until they figure it out. Whereas a lot of people will think, I don't want to break it. I don't want to break it because I don't know how to fix it. I don't want to break it because, you know, all these things. So there, there are folks who are less likely to just figure it out, just play around with it and get accustomed to it and get a feel for, for how the technology works. So there's a couple different things happening when you talk about the relationship that people have with their technology. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious about that um, because at least when we talk about artificial intelligence and like the stories that we tell ourselves or that are told out in the media, you kind of fall into like two categories. It's either like really dystopic, like, oh, the, you know, technology, Terminator's coming for us, you know, eventually, or the utopia, you know, oh, well, technology is going to fix everything in our lives. We can just keep, you know, progress is going to keep going. It's wonderful. Um, whereas the reality is somewhere in the middle, but there's something particular about technology. And I'm also interested in the spiritual question. There seems to be a particular substance that technology takes on in our lives. Uh, and I'm wondering your thoughts about what is that, what is that difference that lets us like talk to a laptop in a different way than we would talk to say like, you know, a can of soda or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I feel like there's, there is a relationship that you build with, with technological tools. Um, these things have been designed and constructed by other humans, of course, like everything else. Um, but they also provide you with a window to the world. They allow you to communicate with other people. So they act as something of a conduit. Uh, and I feel like because we use them so much in our interaction to communicate with other people, 
then they're part of the conversation. Um, so in a way, we do have this um, proxy relationship, if you will, uh, with our laptops. If you use, for example, if you use your uh, iPad as the only way to see your grandchild in between Christmas and every, you know, every year, then that iPad takes on a level of significance to you because it connects you to your grandchild. So I feel like the relationships that we do have with our devices, whether there's so many people nowadays that's not that don't even blink about sleeping with their phone, sleeping next to their phone, waking up and seeing their the first thing they do is look at their phone. Like I've seen people almost drop their phone and everyone collectively breathes a sigh of relief for them because we've all had that moment. I remember one of the first times I've dropped my phone in a glass of, of water, dropped my phone in a sink of dishes, like these moments. I will, I've told my phone after losing it before uh, I was at a museum in New York and I, I dropped my phone, didn't realize it until I got to the ticket gate at the, the train station, walked back and I found it in the intersection. Cars driving right over it. I picked up my phone. I said, never again. I will never lose it. I, I have this like really significant moment with my phone because it is there with me all day long at my side. There's this level of reliability to it that I don't have in some of my human relationships. Um, if I take care of it, meaning if I make sure it's charged, if I clean it, the screen every now and then, uh, if I don't drop it too much, if I put a screen protector on there, then it is reliable to me. It does provide me with access to different things and facilitates uh, different conversations and whatnot. So we do build these kinds of relationships to our technology. Right now I have a laptop with a cracked screen, bless its heart. And I don't, I don't have the money to, to just fix it right away. Uh, but I've, I found a way to connect it to an old TV monitor that I have, which is why I can look two different ways and see, see you all or see the screen. Um, but like to, to recycle a laptop that I've had for years is a, is a very difficult decision because it, it is, not necessarily a part of the, a member of the family, but it is a part of the family, right? Uh, so that that's why I, I think there's that kind of connection and relationship to our technologies. Yeah, it definitely gives me a little bit of fear uh, thinking about how close our relationship with our technology can become. I, I think about my relationship with Alexa um, and how I keep accidentally calling her she, I mean it, she, I, but then I feel bad when I say it and I, I feel like I shouldn't feel bad about that. I, it's kind of messed up. There's like, <laughs> there's some weird, like gray areas of these like, uh, healthy relationships that, uh, are a little bit uncharted territory for sure. <laughs> Um, something I'm, I'm really interested in your overall, just your research, but then also like your background, Shamika, is this intersection between spirituality and technology. And I, I'm just kind of curious from your experience, how you think that the two have influenced each other in your life and how your background, um, in that it, it is a very just unique and colorful background, how, how you have highlighted each of those aspects of yourself to come to the place that you are and how they sort of play into each other. Yeah. Uh, that's a really great question. So in terms of the, the technology and spirituality piece, uh, some folks might think technology and spirituality first met when the iPhone introduced a prayer app. However, uh, technology and spirituality have been intertwined since Gutenberg Bible, right? Uh, the Gutenberg Press uh, allowing the print of uh, the Bible 
for lots of people to then read uh, in conjunction with Martin Luther's transcription of the Bible from Latin into a German uh, dialect that most people in his area were able to read. Uh, those two things coming together really just disseminated uh, so much new information and changed the landscape of uh, church and church denominations forever. The Catholic church was the only game in town uh, for Christianity uh, for for hundreds of years. And then Martin Luther came along and wanted to remain part of the Catholic church, but had questions, obviously. And so when he was able to disseminate that Bible through the Gutenberg Press, that then afforded a whole new level of interaction and engagement with the Bible by people who weren't priests. So the Lutheran church was an offshoot of that, which started the Protestant revolution, uh, the reformation, uh, and other denominations soon followed like the Episcopal church, uh, and the, uh, Methodist church, all of these different denominations, a lot of the different, uh, fractures from there came from how and when and why to baptize people or this kind of thing. Like they, they became more about some of the sacraments, how the liturgies work and this kind of thing. But that particular first moment was tied to a technology like the Gutenberg press. When you think about, um, the the other things like the radio or television that when they were introduced those those were became mediums for particular preachers to take advantage of so there were radio preachers there were and still are television preachers um and when the internet came out it was no different there were there were pastors and faith communities who were streaming their services had satellite churches where you would come to church and your pastor would be on a TV screen hundreds of miles away in a different state, and they would be delivering the sermon. Uh, there were online spaces for sharing prayers and praying for people. And then, of course, apps uh, came to follow. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of spiritual apps uh, in the App Store on Apple and in the, the Play Store on Google uh, and if there was still Windows phones, I would imagine there would probably still be a spiritual app there too. But the idea being that there's this long history of conjunction points in which uh, the dissemination of information and the ability to connect with other people was met with a particular technology. So in the landscape today, there are faith communities trying to figure out how do we continue to serve our communities. And one solution is uh, through various technological tools. Um, so I, I hope that answers the first question. Uh, the second question you were asking, um, if I remember it correctly, was asking about my my very colorful history. <laughs> so <clears throat> when I was when I was a kid, I was the old, I am the oldest of four kids, and we were very poor. Um, so I chose to throw myself into school because that was free. And one of the things that I did one summer uh, was find this free engineering camp called the Pre-Freshman Engineering Program. It was a three-summer program. You got college credits at the end. And I did that for three summers. After that last summer, I found out about a math camp that was taking place at Texas State University uh, in San Marcos, which used to be Southwest State university. Uh, so I went to that math camp for three summers as well. It was at that math camp that I met Dr. Max Warshower, who encouraged me to apply to Stanford, which I, I would, I would have gone to Howard Payne university in the middle of nowhere, Texas, had he not encouraged me to apply, uh, where I did. So that also changed the trajectory and course of my life by being a first generation college student, um, at a place like Stanford. While I was there, I wanted to major in either mathematics or engineering, management science and engineering. But the first math class I took 
uh, I was weeded out of, unfortunately. Um, a combination of things, being uh, being a first-generation college student, being one of them, but then also the way the class was structured. Um, there was this one moment where the grades from the last quiz were shown in a scatter plot on the board, not with names, but with grades. And my grade was the last X, standard deviation away from everyone else. That was not encouraging for a freshman uh, who just came out of math camp, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and to see myself for the first time in my academic career not doing well. Uh, so after taking that and one other computer science course, I decided to become a fuzzy, which is essentially a person who studies non-technical, non-STEM, non-science uh, uh, majors. And so I found my way from economics to uh, a couple other short-lived majors to African and African-American studies, since those were the classes I was responding to the most. Uh, and so I decided to graduate with that degree. Um, I did decide on becoming uh, or pursuing a PhD when I was in the seventh grade and found out what a PhD was. But it wasn't until I was at Union Theological Seminary and I was thinking about how I wanted to serve people, what were the important issues of my time. I saw the writing on the wall in terms of how technology was changing so many things, um, but it was doing so in a way that was not always ethical. Uh, and there seemed to be a story every day coming out about how technology was falling short for particular groups of people. And it was the same groups of people in all of these stories that kept getting the short end of the stick. So I wanted to be part of the solution to that particular problem, which is why I decided to use my academic research uh, life to address technology, ethics, and social justice issues. Yeah, I wanted to, to dive in a little bit more to that actually. So in one way, right, it sounds like what you're doing is super radical because of the intersection um, uh, the interdisciplinary focus of you bringing like spirituality and technology together. And the other way that I see that what you're doing is at least to hear you saying that what you're doing is really radical is about this, uh, asking these questions about access and power in technology and in technology spaces. Uh, and I'm wondering for, for you um, as a black woman in these spaces, talking about issues of access and power, uh, just what, where where you're where you're at with that and how it's impacted maybe how you've been seen in the academy or in industry or uh, just really like what your experience has been. Uh, yeah, that's that's also a really uh, great question, uh, which I appreciate. So in my doctoral program, I am one of two black people. Both of us are female identified, and we're the first black people in this program, either as PhD students or uh, even amongst the faculty. Uh, we, I believe, have one faculty of color uh, and she is not black, but um, the, the landscape in a lot of departments, whether they're information science or computer science, they're just not a lot of people who look like me. So I recognize the, the politics of my positionality um, within the context of choosing to study something like technology uh, from this critical perspective. So there's, of course, this desire to not fall into the angry black woman trope of coming up to you know the tech industry, wagging my finger and shaking my neck, talking about this is what you need to do and here's why. Um, so I feel like I, I want to, to be authentically who I am in the context of my research um, and, and not not allow stereotypes or short-sightedness um, 
to to derail what it is that I'm trying to do. I have recognized that being at a, a PWI, predominantly white institution, uh, I've accepted the fact that I will have to have some teachable moments or I will be afforded the opportunity to take advantage of teachable moments. Uh, I have had someone reach out and touch my hair without asking several times. And I've had to sh call people out for that kind of thing. It's It's like little microaggressions that are, you know, the death of a thousand cuts that I want to try and mitigate. Um, in terms of being in spaces uh, like conferences or talks or this sort of thing, I thankfully haven't had negative experiences in those arenas. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to uh, whatever my next opportunity is to have a conversation in a, a, a either a technologically based setting or a research, an academic based setting. So either industry or academic uh, where we're having these conversations. Um, and I, I want to be in the room to have the conversation, but I also want to be in the room to show that people like me want to have this conversation, that we have something valuable to say. Um, there's also, there's also this notion of the black tax, which says that we have to work twice as hard to get half as much. So I feel like in this arena, I have to be my absolute best and then some. I have to know as much as possible. I have to be very um, on top of as much as possible uh, and just be um, really diligent about um, being knowledgeable and and having the, the, the answers, the facts, the figures, whatever the case may be. Um, because to be honest, I've, I've been in situations where, where people will look down on me and, and make assumptions about me and whatnot. And when I say something that doesn't fit with their think, what they think I am, they're like, oh, really? I, I didn't realize you knew that word or whatever the case is. Um, and so I don't mind surprising people with who I am, but I also feel like there are also going to be people who are going to be looking to um, to give me a harder time than they might someone else. If I were, to be honest, if I were a white guy and I was going around talking about tech ethics, there'd be people eating it up left and right. But as a black woman, I not only have to go around talking about tech ethics, but I have to also have to do an extra diligence to say, I want to talk about this. I know what I'm talking about. And here's why. And constantly be reminding people that I know what I'm talking about. So I do feel that sort of pressure uh, to, to, to have that at the ready. I, I have two kind of follow-up questions. One is, a, a big question and then the other, they're both big questions. They're all big questions. The uh, first big question is, um, so if you had, I guess, any advice or, or words of hope or solace for um, say a, a younger black woman who is now in seventh grade and wants to one day get their PhD, right, in this field, what would you say to them? Um, and then the second question is, you know, I'm an active pastor right now, I'm serving a congregation. And so I ask myself this a lot when I'm doing artificial intelligence ethics, which is, you know, where is God in this? And I have my own set of answers to that, but I'm wondering for you, if you have an answer to, you know, where God plays into this and how you uh, think about God. Absolutely. Uh, so first the advice to the seven-year-old, uh, basically me from, uh, from myself to them, I would say that regardless of what you end up doing, uh, cause I, I was going to do a PhD on psychology, on the relationship that other people have with black women's hair. Like my PhD topic changed a lot. What didn't change was that I knew I wanted to get one. 
So whatever your dream is, whatever your vision is for yourself, know that it might change the way it's going to happen or the way that it looks, but what won't change is your desire to achieve it. So to hold on to that desire and to have that vision for yourself on the other side of accomplishing it and, and hold fast to that vision as well. So seeing myself walk across the stage in the garbs, getting the piece of paper, like if we have to do virtual graduations at some point in the future, then I'll change what that looks like. But the idea being is that I would want to envision what it looks like to be getting that doctorate uh, in front of my family and friends and loved ones. And that is what kept me going through the really arduous PhD applications or what kept me going through the the really tricky first semester where I'm juggling TAing a class and taking classes and figuring out school again and all of these fun things. Um, so having a vision and being really uh, focused on it and being very vivid with it, I think would be a really great piece of advice for someone like myself. Cause that's what, that's what's helped me hold on to this since the seventh grade. Um, and, and in fact, I, I also would say, uh, whether or not someone is supportive of you, uh, know that you will never leave you. You will be the only person to never leave you. So you can always support yourself if no one else will. Uh, during the pre-freshman engineering program, someone came to speak to our group and talked about how they have a PhD in science and it's really hard to get a PhD in general, let alone to be a minority a person who is of a minoritized group and get a PhD. And it's really hard to, you know, in fact, we probably shouldn't even try because it's so hard. Like the conversation started <laughs> dipping into that. And so the director had to run on stage and like whisper really furiously in his ear before he came back. So, oh, oh, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to say that you shouldn't try, but it's just that it's so hard. And then he took questions. So I was the first one to raise my hand and he, he called on me and I said, my name is Shamika. I just want you to know that I'm going to get my PhD. And I sat down and I, I never forgot that moment. I kept his paper like that. He's handed out some paper with his information. I kept it for years thinking I was going to send him a copy of my PhD once I got it. It got lost in a move, but the idea is still there is that not everybody's going to support you, but you can always support you. So those would be the two pieces of advice I would give that little girl um, and tell her she's beautiful and and, and phenomenally intelligent and, and utterly capable and the world needs what she she has to offer. Um, in terms of the second question, thinking about where God is and the, the conversation around AI, um, there was a conversation that I had a couple of years ago when I was first creating the e-Eucharist app. The e-Eucharist app is a digital communion. And when we were having this conversation with faith leaders, lay leaders about what they thought about digitizing a sacrament like communion, a lot of people were very nervous about taking something that was in the physical space and digitizing it. And a lot of the fears and, and, and issues that I heard were that um, Jesus was embodied and the death and resurrection those were also embodied moments uh, to physically consume the bread and the wine is to physically take act and, and participate in that remembrance. For me, I believe that the divine exists in everything. The divine is omniscient, present everywhere all the time. That includes the bits and the bytes, the zeros and the ones, the digital space. So for me, um, it makes sense that God would be online in an app, in a screen, um, and, and in these different uh, ways manifesting uh, its divinity. Um, 
and and when we created the app, we founded it. the the theo The theological founding for the e Eucharist app was um, the the ancient practice uh, in the Catholic Church of spiritual communion, which is a prayer that is prayed over you or that you pray yourself if you're not able to physically consume communion. And the prayer simply it's it's a very short prayer, but it simply says, "I'm not able to physically be with you, but I am at least spiritually with you." Um, and so we changed the word physically to, uh, to at least, uh, digitally be with you instead of spiritually. Um, so that theological perspective that says that God is in fact everywhere, including the digital space allows me to open my faith in the way that I express it and engage with it into so very many other ways. Uh, through technological tools. And I think that for people who are very anchored in, you know, we have to have church in a building. We have to have uh, communion this way, like being anchored into a physical place or a particular um, expression of ritual that is anchored actually in tradition and not necessarily scripture, uh, I think limits people and that limits their um that limits the God they serve uh, or the divine that they serve. So um, that's my perspective on it. And, and I, I, I think it's, it's something that has really allowed me to open up and, and flourish in different ways uh, in my expression of faith. Wow. Shamika, um, not going to lie. Those answers were incredibly poetic. <laughs> Thank you for the, uh, the amazing words. That's great. Yeah. So um, on this podcast, we, uh, we usually close out our interviews with a set of questions about um, radicality, some might say. And so uh, first question for you is, how would you define the word radical? Nice. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind is the notion of free radicals, which I learned about years ago as a Mary Kay beauty consultant. That has something to do with skincare and whatnot. Uh, I think in this context, the concept of radical is something that deviates from the norm. Um, something that is over the top, off center, um, something that is above and beyond. Awesome. I love it. So next question then is taking your definition of radical, how would you say that either you, your ideas, your research, or your story is radical to you? So I would say that the fact that I'm a, a Black woman and I'm centering the experiences and thoughts of Black women in my research is already off-center uh, and as well as above and beyond. Uh, there are a lot of folks who will take concepts, thoughts, ideas, and whatnot from Black women and minoritized people, and then just sort of take them and use them as their own. So the fact that I, I want to use and cite the work of Black women and minoritized people uh, and use that as my own inspiration, I would say is, is very radical. Shamika, was there any, any last uh, comments or parting thoughts that you wanted to leave our audience with? I would definitely encourage people to be kind to themselves, to their technology, and to each other. Um, when it comes to empowering yourself around a technology, I think the ingredients are twofold. One is to actually learn how to use the technology itself. 
but then also you you have to have that kindness in yourself to say i may not always get it right but i'm going to keep trying and so when you when you are that gentle with yourself then that frees you up to be able to make mistakes and not let that stop you from moving forward uh so that being kind is always a good idea but in the context of um, empowering yourself around technology and Shamika, if uh, our listeners wanted to follow up on your work or find out more about you, is there a place that they could go to do that? Absolutely. The website would be techchaplain.com. Um, I am on various social media platforms, but that's the best place. That's like the home base to uh, learn about tech chaplaincy, to get more information about techno-womanism and to find out where I am uh, in the social media platforms. Right. Well, we'll make sure to include that and uh, other uh, resources that we mentioned, uh, possibly even the eUcharist app. I don't know if that's still in, in use uh, in the show notes for this episode. Shamika, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you all so much. It's always a pleasure to get to chat. We want to thank Shamika for joining us today and for a wonderful conversation. Jess, what did you find particularly radical about this conversation with Shamika today? So for me, I think that um, the the radicality of this episode is actually more in um, Shamika's character and who she is as a person. Uh, I mean, there's definitely like a lot of radical ideas and, and research as well. But I, for me, what was really standing out was um, the fact that I think Shamika really symbolizes um, this notion that a lot of people who are in this space of like technology and ethics, whether it's AI or not, a lot of people are really just looking to make a positive impact on other people's lives in, in the world. And Shamika even said herself at one point, she decided to commit her life to service when she became a tech chaplain. And that I think is just like so symbolic of um, a bunch of people who are doing similar things in this space, just really committing their lives to, to helping others in whatever way they can. And I think something else kind of along those same lines that was really standing out for me uh, when especially when she was talking about how she really has to work hard to um, be recognized and trusted so that people um, can think of her as like a credible source of information. It was just sort of opening my eyes more to this idea that uh, a lot of times it seems like the people who tend to do the most and some of the most important work, they are the ones who get recognized the least and they're also also the ones who have to work the hardest. And a lot of these um, people are ones who suffer from a lot of uh, racial and gender bias and stereotyping and discrimination. And so I think Shamika as a whole just is a really, really great beacon of hope for uh, anyone else who's maybe going through those, um, those same issues and um, suffering in the same ways in life. But the fact that she's just really um, kicking ass while she's doing it is it's awesome to see. What about you? What, what stood out for you, Dylan? I think for me, what was really radical about Shamika and this episode was this conversation that we had about spirituality and technology. As I've mentioned before, I'm a minister uh, serving a congregation right now, but for a long time, I was a chaplain in the hospital setting. So I worked for a year in the burn unit and neurological ICU, and my entire job was to meet with people, meet them where they were at emotionally and spiritually, and help them process their mortality, essentially. That was the job of the chaplain. 
And so now Shamika has taken this concept of chaplaincy and brought it to a whole new level about technology ethics. And I think it's amazing how she's thinking about spirituality and thinking about technology and really bridging that ethical gap. I mean, we talk so much about access and about who has access to these technologies. And wouldn't it be amazing and maybe even spiritual, right, for people to have someone to walk them through that uh, for, for many different reasons. It's uh, technology at this point is a way that we connect with one another and connect with the greater world. And so doesn't it make sense that Shamika is out there trying to connect people because technology is how we connect. I'd also like to lift up right now, again, as we're recording this episode in the midst of this pandemic, just how important technology is for each of us to be able to stay connected even when we can't be connected physically. So what would the world be like if we didn't see technology and spirituality as two separate things completely, but if we really put them together and saw them as two elements maybe of the same world or at least the same human domain that we're all trying to navigate together. Now, I know, Jess, at the beginning of this episode, you mentioned that historically maybe you were a little uh, uncomfortable with thinking of spirituality and technology in uh, the same thought or uh, as the same substance or a similar substance. I'm wondering how you feel about that now after our conversation with Shamika. Yeah, I actually really like the way that you word that. Um, I, I know Shamika said a lot of things that led you down this path, but I, I totally agree. I think that um, maybe it's a little bit naive to think that technology and um, be it religion or spirituality or faith in general, um, I, it's kind of a bit naive to maybe think that those things need to be separated and that they even can be separated. I think that's like really true to say that they um, they need to come together in the future because maybe it's inevitable that it's going to happen anyway. So it's about like finding um, the best ways to to intersect technology and spirituality in a way that that's beneficial for everyone. So yeah, I, I completely agree. I think to a certain degree there there's definitely some inevitability there and it's it's just about you know doing it the right way the ethical way, some might say. <laughs> <laughs> some might say, we might say. Let's talk about that, though. Let's talk about the ethical applications of what Shamika is doing, what Shamika's project is, especially in terms of artificial intelligence ethics. Because Shamika's not really talking about AI ethics, but I think everything that she said is directly applicable to AI ethics, and maybe to all of us, no matter where we find ourselves. I think the biggest takeaway that I had uh, is Shumika's bravado, I want to say, or bravery or courage to just name who she is, name her identities, and really lean into that. And what I heard her saying is that that's what techno-womanism invites us to do, is to meet ourselves where we're at and say to ourselves, okay, this is who I am. Now, how do I make the world a better place? And I think for all of us in technology development right now, we really need to take that invitation seriously about who am I? What are the needs of my communities? And how am I going to make the world a better place? With technology, maybe a more accessible place. It also is a reminder that the majority of faces that we might see 
in AI technology development meetings are not the entirety of the voices or the faces of the people out there that are going to be using the products. Now, I don't know about you, Jess, but the meetings that I've been in, there haven't necessarily been a lot of Black women there. And so Shamika saying, no, actually, we're here. This is, this is who we are. This is what uh, the perspectives that we have and the embodiment that we have. Now, can we make technology that is accessible to everyone, including us? Yeah, I think it gives me a lot of hope too. just having been in the space of um, not necessarily artificial intelligence ethics for a while, but having been in the AI and machine learning and, and tech space around here, there's um, quite a lack of, of diversity, uh, not just in terms of people, but of thought. And so I think it's really refreshing to see somebody come in who's just so um, holy themselves, you know, and, and just not holding back and really like bringing something new to the table because they are so unique in their perspective. And, and I hope this can be, uh, like a nice little beacon of light for, for other people who maybe come from less traditional backgrounds to, to do the same for themselves and for the world, honestly. <laughs> now, obviously when you say something like around here, we're not going to name any, uh, specifics, but, um, I think it is really important for us to take Shamika's invitation seriously which is for us to throw ourselves, to lean into who we are and what we bring to the table. Like I am a minister, right? That's not normal in the tech field. And I feel like it gives me a unique perspective. And so the, uh, one of the invitations that I hear techno-womanism and Shamika making to me and to all of us is to create more space for our unique stories. Like, can we be more imaginative based on where we come from and the identities that we inhabit and embody? And will that possibly transform the world for the better? Like, let's get creative. Let's get radical. <laughs> but let's do something that makes the world a better place, especially for some of us who do have influence and power about how these technologies are being shaped and designed. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Radical AI Podcast. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes at RadicalAI.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs>